healthcare. It happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Nearly a two-word review just said, shit sandwich. I will roll the record up to the next man. Welcome back to the Basement Fellow Music Lovers. You are now tuned in to yet another exciting adventure with us here on Chunky Glasses, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin, as usual. And we got a very special edition here for you today. Number two in our series of Go Go is History. And down here with me in the basement right now to tell you all about it is one Mr. Marcus K. Dowling. Yes, yes, yes. What's going on, everybody? Uh, this is the second edition of the uh, Go Go is CC History panels I've been hosting with the uh, aid of the uh, DC Public Library. This one was, was recorded on August 15th at the Woodbridge uh, branch of the D.C. Public Library over in Northeast D.C. Woodbridge is a brand new, uh, renovated uh, space for uh, DCPL, and it was a fun conversation. It was myself, along with Dior Ashley Brown of the DAB brand. Uh, we had Geronimo Collins, Geronimo Knows from the All the Fly Kids podcast. Had uh, Jamal Gray from the Uptown Art House in Nag Champa, Reaganomics, and uh, Computer Club along with uh, Brianna Younger from NPR and Sirius and Pitchfork and all the cool places where you like to read cool stuff. Uh, we spoke about five songs in particular and covered about, I'd like to say, 45 to 50 years of DC history in one conversation. So it was a wonderful time, and uh, the songs were Chuck Brown's Run Joe. We had uh, Sardines by the Junkyard Band. You have The Water by Northeast Groovers. Had uh, Let Me Clear My Throat by DJ Cool. And uh, the cover of Adele's Hello by the Backyard Band. So we, uh, we covered those five songs. It was a great conversation. I hope that you enjoy. So, Marcus, do you think this is everything everybody needs to know about Go-Go? Again, it's not necessarily everything that everybody needs to know, but it gives you a good, you know, like a good, like, you know, kind of like ground covering history of Go-Go. And then you get mixed in some uh, great, you know, DC facts and figures about the history of the nation's capital. Good enough. I dig it. Hopefully you guys are going to dig it. So instead of heading down to the basement right now, you can head down to the basement of a library. How you like that? And, uh, yeah. Stripping kids. This is a long one. See you on the other side. Thank everyone for coming out, our panel, fellow staff members, and everyone had an opportunity to make this event happen. Uh, once again, my name is Kenny Despert. I'm a librarian here at Woodridge Library, neighborhood library here at 18 Hamlin Street. I formerly used to work at the Special Collections Division down at MLK Library, which uh, incorporated the Washingtonian Division, History of D.C., along with Black Studies, and uh, the Peabody Room in the History of Georgetown. Uh, for those who don't know, MLK Library has been closed for renovations for three years. And we are, when I say we, the library system is trying to find ways, methods, um, outlets for keeping the presence of black studies in Washingtoniana 
uh, in the history of D.C. alive, although MLK is closed for the next three years. I think that this go-go discussion that we're going to have tonight is a definitely um, an avenue to present stuff out to our communities about what's going on. And also, I just hope this is a springboard for other events to take place. Um, I would like to implore you to take a look at some of our programming here at Woodridge. as a uh, calendar of events for August. So if you get an opportunity, please take a look at that. Uh, my co-worker, I'm going to introduce shortly, his name is uh, Derek Gray. He's an archivist here. If you want to keep informed about um, things that are going on in the happenings, uh, please provide your email. He'll talk about it a little bit more when I introduce him as well. But again, I just want to thank everyone for coming out and our, our panelists right here tonight. And I want to introduce you to Mr. Gray, who's our archivist, who's um, also uh, the point of contact for our GoGo archives. So once again, thank you all for coming out. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Um, as Kenny mentioned, uh, my name is Derek Gray. I am uh, the archivist for Special Collections, Washingtoniana, and the um, manager of the uh, GoGo Archive. Um, the mission of Washingtoniana is to collect, preserve, and document local D.C. history and culture. Obviously, that includes music. Um, I've been with the division for about nine years, and when I arrived, you could probably fit everything that we had on GoGo into a very small archival box. Um, a couple of years later, now I'm pleased to say we have a lot more. Um, we did officially kick off the archive in 2012 after Chuck's passing, and we've been um, building it ever since. Um, it consists of books, photographs, uh, CDs, cassettes, uh, Globe concert posters, a lot of memorabilia, T-shirts, a um, couple of uh, drumsticks from Backyard Band, autographed T-shirts from Rare Essence, so a nice variety. But I really want this to be the biggest go-go archive possible, so I, we need your help. Um, if, you're, if you have anything to donate, um, please see me. Um, if you know people who might be interested in donating, please let me know. Um, all of my contact information is at the table. Please sign up um, our, on our email list for updates. Um, and also, please take a, a calendar of events. Uh, we'll be having some more events this week, ending on um, Sunday the 20th. So again, um, thank you very much. I look forward to the program tonight, and I'd like to introduce Marcus Dowling, who will introduce our panel. Thank you again, everybody. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. How's everybody doing? Okay, my name is Marcus Dowling. I'm a native Washingtonian. I uh, am currently the... Uh, Creative uh, the, uh, the creative director at uh, Decades Nightclub in downtown Washington, D.C. Uh, for 10 years prior to that, I was a uh, journalist, wrote for places such as uh, Vice, Pitchfork, uh, Complex, Washington City Paper, uh, all over the map, uh, Red Bull, all sorts of places. Um, I'm also a, uh, a music fanatic. I've become a bit of an ethnomusicologist as of late. Um, a number of titles. So... Uh, Gogo means a lot to me. Um, I started this off, I, I met Maggie, and then we, we sat down with Derek, and this was, gosh, almost a year ago now? Almost a year ago, and I had this idea where I wanted to contextualize the history of Gogo. 
alongside the history of the nation's capital and alongside the street-level history of, of this, 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 uh, the, the nation's capital. It's important, and given that the city's changing so much, that you remember what the city was. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to use the music that was the most dominant form of music in said streets, which to me and for many other people was, is, continues to be go-go music. So that's a bit of my background. That's a bit of the background about why we're doing what we're doing and what you're going to hear, what you're going to hear. So uh, there's another panelist on the way. I'll introduce her, Dior Ashley Brown. She's a uh, graduate of Duke Ellington School for Performing Arts. She is a uh, interviewer, vocalist, rapper, performer, griot, amazing human being. And she's in here. She's a force of nature and, uh, as well. And she'll be on the panel. But uh, my other three panelists here, I, I count them also as friends. So uh, this is actually going to be a lot of fun. So uh, I'll introduce them. Let them introduce themselves, rather. Spent about the past 20 years hanging out in the city. Um, been all up and down around the city and then some. Right now, I'm the host of a podcast called The All the Fly Kids Show, where we talk to a lot of influential people in a number of different areas, uh, specifically arts, entertainment, marketing, business, community activism, things of that nature within D.C. Um, every Tuesday comes out. You can find it wherever podcasts are held. Um, also, I'm just overall just a social connector and a lover of urban lifestyle and um, urban living. So that's me. <laughs> Hello, I'm Brianna Younger. I believe I'm the only transplant on the panel. Um, I'm originally from North Carolina. I've been here nine years now and just have kind of loved on and somewhat adopted the culture of D.C., came to Howard 2008, stuck around, and just been trying to soak up every little bit of it as I can. And um, professionally, I work at SiriusXM, and I am also um, a music critic and writer and all that good stuff. Hello, hello. Uh, my name is Jamal Gray, native Washingtonian, Northeast and Northwest, respectively. Uh, I would say I'm the Washingtonian that is not the go-go head, but I'm raised in D.C., so go-go is um, an integral part of, like, my upbringing. Uh, I don't need the mic necessarily. Okay. Um, so I'm a musician uh, of sorts, curator. I currently operate a space called Uptown Art House. It's a creative art space in Cleveland Park. And um, our mission is arts and activism, so arts with a purpose. And I'm a second generation uh, music enthusiast and uh, curator in DC. Both of my parents were involved in the arts, so happy to be here. All right, so let's uh, go into the history of the nation's capital. Uh, Let's talk about Washington, DC, in and around 1966. 1966, you have a lot of soul bands that are kicking around town, sometimes five, six, seven nights a week, playing in all sorts of, you know, in all four quadrants of the city, playing, you know, a mix of, you know, Motown covers, Stats covers, you know, just general soul and R&B, and the leading band leader, leading band, was Donnie Chuck Brown, 
who had been in prison for a penitentiary, and was released in the early 1960s. And he was a musician. And he started, you know, like touring around and playing with various bands. And uh, by that time, he was in a band called Soul Searchers. And they were playing a lot of gigs. And they were really developing their sound. And one of the biggest things about these parties is that you didn't have like, a lot of breaks in the music. You didn't have this kind of situation where the band plays one song, and they have a break, do a talk, play another song. The key to these parties was that the music was consistent. The music was non-stop. Mm -hmm. So it was like a band would stage, 45 minutes later, you're like, wow, time to go. So one of the things that Chuck used to like to do was that around the 70s, it, you know, like, there were songs that were very popular. So one of the songs that they like to break into was a song that we played earlier, Mr. Magic by Grover Washington Jr. And uh, that was a song that he was very fond of breaking into. And you can extend that. The song you heard was nine minutes long. So understand that Chuck's version of Mr. Badger, the Soul Searchers, is sometimes not nine minutes long, sometimes it's 15 minutes long, sometimes 20 minutes long, depending on if, say, bathroom or whatever was going on, like that was the general idea. So that was appropriate. So we uh, get to the point where we are now where we start our conversation, which is 1986. Uh, 1986 in uh, Washington, D.C., the city is uh, largely still African-American. We're only uh, 65 to 70% of the city is African-American at this point. Uh, bands are still able to play five nights a week in various places all around the city. Uh, Chuck Brown and Soul Searchers were very well known for playing a place called Crystal Skate, which was just over the D.C. line into Wells, Maryland. And they also played at a place uh, called RSVP Club. The RSVP Club being in Southwest Washington, D.C. Which are there any transplant non-native Washingtonians who have moved here in the last 10 years? Okay, so you see what's happening now in Southwest Washington, D.C., right? Near the wharf. So imagine that what's going on by the wharf, a completely different thing is going on down there. Like, there are large clubs, there are large restaurants, there are large open spaces where two to three nights a week, once the dinner time service is done or once, like, you know, like, you're done with, you know, like, the, the work day, these places turn into giant clubs where go-go parties are held, where people can come and hear their favorite band. So... Pop, so Chuck's the most popular artist. Chuck's making this, this wonderful music. And he decides, okay, I'm going to release this live album. Go, go live. And the thing that Chuck is best re regarded for is that he's a musician supreme. Like He is able to take various genres of music, various styles of music, various interpretations of music, and filter them into this prism of this funk-driven sound that is inspired by songs like Mr. Magic. So it's like you take all these various genres of the world and you infuse them into a very, you know, funk-driven sound. So in a lot of ways it's like a cover, but it's not like a cover. That's one of those things with go-go music that makes it hard for people to explain. How many people in here are native Washingtonians that have ever had to try to explain what go-go is to their friends and family 
and it becomes damn near impossible. <laughs> yeah, so that's where we are, and I'm going to play you one of the songs from uh, Go Go Swing Live. Uh, it's a song called Run Joe, which after I play this, I'm going to play a version of Run Joe that's going to show you where it came from. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you a sense of Chuck Brown's musical mastery and the thing that I was attempting to describe earlier. So here's Run Joe by Chuck Brown Soul Searchers from 1986. Soul Searchers, Run Joe. Now we're going to go back to 1948. And Louis Jordan, noted jazz band leader, he was influenced by Calypso and numerous other genres as well. And he recorded a song called Run Joe. And here's a sample of what that sounds like. That's Run Joe from Louis Jordan from 1948. And uh, I want to turn to the panel now. And I want to ask, first and foremost, uh, what does Chuck Brown mean, not just to DC music, but to the larger history of music in general, do you feel? I'd say he is definitely a, a, a true music historian as even a performer. Um, as I told you earlier, um, when you were just going through all the songs that you're going to play this evening, I said, you know, what he did with um, just as a performer, it doesn't just show his breadth and depth of knowledge, but it just shows like, okay, he is a full genre creator. He added to the overall um, 
composition of just music as a whole by taking these different influences and creating the genre of go-go in the way that he did. And, uh, yeah, so Bree? Um, well, I think it goes without saying that um, anyone, to Geronimo's point, who can create a genre is incredibly important to music. Um, to see a genre get created in real time, obviously, I was not here for that, but you can imagine hearing that for the first time and then seeing how far it ultimately traveled. And unfortunately, I feel like Chuck doesn't really get his due in larger music conversations. He still seems like a DC icon, a DC music hero, but not a true music hero. And I find that to be incredibly unfortunate when you consider that Gogo has infiltrated the mainstream, the drum patterns have infiltrated the mainstream. Right. And yep. Chuck Brown somehow has not. And it's a great injustice, honestly, but Chuck Brown himself, I think his contributions will always speak for themselves. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, in any any art form and its genesis, it's usually not the pe- like the progenitors that get all the credit for anyway. Right. You know, so I think Chuck's career is a, is a reflection of that. It's like later in his life, he gets recognized, he gets the Grammy, and you know things right. like that. But um, I think specifically, like as an artist creator, um, he was a foreshadowing of what was to come as far as like recontextualizing different forms of music. Like my favorite Chuck Brown joints, of course, like Go-Go Swing. I mean, that's taking a riff off of Duke Ellington or like Moody's Move for Love, you know, which is a James right. Moody joint or even like Woody Woodpecker. So it's like taking things that are uh, already in the populist conscience and then like recontextualizing it to you know, I mean, it, it definitely, his music reflect what DC was on at the time, but it also reflect where music was going, I think. I mean, funk, you know, you hear the church in his music, you definitely heard the Latin influence. The jazz and blues was undeniable. So right. it's like recontextualizing, that's what I call it, you know, and then it's like right after that, it's like house music is happening. They're yeah. doing the same thing. Hip hop is happening. They're doing the same thing. Taking parts, and of course, hip hop and house music took parts to go go too. So I think, um, I mean, definitely the time we're in now is like pretty much I think music is, you know, popular music. A lot of it is derivative. So he was derivative in a sense, but creating something new from that. So I think he should be respected in that right. It's just like recontextualizing pieces. Exactly. So I wanted to speak to Washington, D.C. in 1986. In 1986, I was eight years old. I lived in far northeast D.C. And this is Dior Ashley Brown, ladies and gentlemen. How you doing? We're talking about uh, we're talking about Chuck right now. We're talking about Chuck right now. We're talking about 1986. Yeah. So so in 1986, I was saying I was eight years old. I was living in uh, Deanwood, Northeast uh, Deanwood, far northeast DC. Um, and this was like a crazy time because like I remember that like the cool thing was like. Run Joe would like be played on the radio. So like I listened to the radio every morning religiously with my mother driving me to my grandmother's house who was like my caretaker and my uh, preschool and after school like daycare person. And I always would hear these songs on the radio in the morning. So like Gogo to me always was like reflective of like that time of day alongside the news, alongside everything else. It was in that same conversation. So like Run Joe's crazy because it's like, okay, like I grew up in the hood 
and you see like actual like cops in the morning like chasing people down the street and then you get into the car and you hear run joe and you're like mm-hmm. wait <laughs> this song is real yeah. i was like mom this who's chuck brown because he makes real songs like and i was like well well baby like most of these songs that you hear on the radio that are about things that are real are, are, are real and i'm like wow that's 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 insane. And then you like listen to the news, and it says you know when DC was like experiencing like the uh, the crack epidemic, and we were rapidly rising towards uh, you know having the most murders of any city in America. And so it was like poignant as well because like you could make this song that could groove, that was like socially powerful. I didn't even know about the Louis Jordan version until like maybe 20 years ago, but like. I was like, wow, this song has this groove to it, but it has, like, actual social importance. Yes. And there's this crazy thing about, like, D.C. always, and I want everybody on the panel to speak to this, to the idea that no matter what was going on, there was always a desire to use this music to keep sane not even to like go to the party or do whatever, but initially, just initially, in the middle of like 86, just to like stay sane in the middle of like completely insane times in the nation's capital. So Dior, if you would like to begin. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the music definitely was a time for, to maintain a sort of sanity. Uh, I came back home in 97. Uh, my mother's from here. My grandfather had a bike shop on a 14th and B. Uh, and uh, our, our church was St. Augustine. St. Augustine uh, Catholic Church, black Catholic church on 14th and B. And uh, for me coming back home, I came from an area in Colorado Springs that was majority white. And so all of the bands were like rock bands and alternative. So when I came back home and I was listening to Go-Go and then there was nothing but black music going on the radio, WPGC, WPYS, I was, you know, going crazy that that vibe was in my ear all the time hearing this live drum. And for me, it was a balance of sanity because I was like, wow, I'm hearing black music and live bands over the radio, which is unheard of in the Midwest. So to come back home and for me, to gain that sanity in 97, I would definitely say there was a balance and there was a sense of pride. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated going to different areas, different wards, uh, whether I was in Northeast, Southeast, whatever neighborhood, I knew where, who, who and where they came from based on what they were wearing because the go-go was set the tone and the vibe. Right. You know what I'm saying? I was going to the go-go. I couldn't go to all the go-go's because my parents were like, all right, man. <laughs> no, no, my parents. I got the chance to see Scarface with um, Backyard Band at the Stadium Armory back in the day. What? <laughs> and, and Smile had came that, out. That, that's major. That, that's a big deal right there. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was definitely about the same. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so how old were you in 86? I was four. We always start here in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I was, I was, I was four, and my... And, you know, my earliest, that, that time, my only recollection of go-go music was from what my sister was playing. She's 16 years older than me. So she was listening to Chuck Brown, but more specifically, she was speaking, listening to Rare Essence. That was her favorite band. She was going to see them all the time. You know what I mean? And even then, I just knew 
having heard go-go music on the radio, in the streets, in cars, it was so embedded in the culture that um, even as a form of just um, a way to relax and get away from just all that ails you, all you know, this, this, that, and the third, going to the shows and things like that, as I later learned, um, as I got older, I started attending shows myself and just saw how embedded in the culture of this city, of this region, go-go was, you know, I remember even how, like Jamal said earlier, you know, he, he's not the biggest fan of the music, but how back in the day, how it was so entrenched in the culture, like if you weren't a fan of Go-Go, it was just like, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? And, and even just speaking to like how you said the fashion, there was a Run Joe crew neck. So once upon a time in uh, street and urban fashion, there was this thing called bootlegs. And I'm not talking about like knockoffs. I'm talking about like bootlegs and that they would take cartoon characters and just, you know, Different artists would just recreate them like they did it with The Simpsons. They did it with Mickey and Minnie Mouse. All these different things. So there was, they took Mickey and Minnie. Um, well, they took Mickey Mouse, did a whole Run Joe shirt with that. Um, I actually had the Run Joe shirt um, along with a Miami Mice shirt. You had the Run Joe shirt? Yes, I had a Run Joe shirt. I would have, I would I we would have fought. <laughs> I had a Run Joe shirt. I, I don't know. I somehow always ended up all the stuff that my mother vehemently fought against buying me, but she still ended up buying me. We would have fought for the Run Joe shirt because I wanted the Run Joe shirt. I had to go go Mickey. But even even that is just like a way of a, a way to release a, a, a sort of relief from just all the ills that were taking place in and around DC at that time from the, from eighty six onward through like the early two thousands. So uh, definitely, if uh, both of you at the end of the panel can speak to the nature of Gogo as this kind of like sound that keeps the it keeps people together, like it keeps yeah. the sanity in the room in in the middle of like absurdity, just in general. I was going to say, please don't ask what I was doing in 1986. No, I, I wouldn't. I would not. I would not. I would not. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think Gogo, just as someone who came here, I feel like having learned the music, it informs a lot of the swagger. And I think even now, mm-hmm. especially that this, the city is gentrifying and Gogo isn't really in the city as much, I feel like the people are still go-go. Like, mm-hmm. the way they move, the way they talk, the slang they use, mm-hmm. all of this came from, you know, this one centerpiece, this one genre that served to give a culture a culture within itself. And I think that, I don't know, it's just an intangible thing. Like, like when he played Run Joe, like, the way people just started moving immediately. Like, yeah. it's just like, I, I don't know, it's just a cultural... Yeah. You have to see it to believe it. And I say that as someone who hasn't even stepped foot in a go-go, which is the ultimate violation, I realize. <laughs> but I'm going to take you to a show. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing about this, this panel is that everybody in this room is going to take Brie to somebody's go-go, like, at somebody's party after this is done. So that's why, that's why I put you on the panel, Brie. You, you have a whole bunch of friends now. Most appreciated. But, um, yeah, just, you know, I hear it everywhere. I'm, I'm obviously familiar with it. But I think... You know, to see it in action, to having seen it in action in this minute way, where it just moves people. I can imagine what it's like when you get in the room and everyone is just on this singular waveform. Like, that's powerful. It taps into your DNA. <laughs> um, 86 was actually the year that I was born, so I don't know what I was doing. Uh, Things I know about you, Jamal. Yeah. <laughs> he started there. Um, so in 86... Uh, my father was living in, in Northeast in Kenilworth 
right on Douglas Street. And so we had Kenilworth Park right around there. Um, so we can go back to, like, when the Stone Soul picnic was happening. And then, like, Fort DuPont is not that far. So we, you know, for me, introduction to Go-Go wasn't as much as, like, hey, we're going to a Go-Go as much as it was. Live music has just been a part of my upbringing. So, you know, when you go to Stone Soul picnic and there's, like, Royers there and then Chuck Brown and then, you know what I'm saying, something that, that's in that continuum was happening. And Fort DuPont would be the same thing. Uh, so, I mean, I can't really say what my first real go-go experiences are, um, but yeah, 86, that's where I was, and um, Kenilworth is really not too much different than it was in 86. It was a mix of, uh, on one side, you had houses, families that had been established and living there for years, and on the other side, you know, you had the, the projects, which was like a lot of newer families, and you know, Quar Douglas Street and Quarles and all of that that was happening. Um, was definitely a direct reflection of everything D.C. was because on one side, like I said, you had your middle-class black families living really well, and then you had, you know, the projects and the reality of what that was, and then we had Kenilworth Park back there, and we had Aquatic Gardens. So um, for me, Go-Go just represent, like, those summer times, for real. Um, I mean, specifically, I think Go-Go music reflects... It's like the cultural fingerprint in D.C. because you, you have this sophisticated kind of feel of like this East, because we're an East Coast city um, with a lot of uh, different ideas of, of black identity here. And um, so it reflects like that sophistication of a big city. But then it's also a lot of our families came from the South. So you still had that like warm, soulful thing about us. Um, and that's reflective of D.C., I think, of how we get down, and Go-Go reflects that, like, the rawness, but also a very sophisticated sensibility, um, and Chuck Brown's music reflected that to me, so when I hear Ron Joe or, or any of the other music that he was making, I mean, specifically in those times, that's, that's what it feels like to me, I would say. So uh, I played something that's for the 21 and over crowd in 1986. But what I'm going to play now, without even introducing it properly, is, is what the 21 and under crowd in Washington, D.C. was listening to at the time. Sardines by the Junkyard Band, released by Def Jam Recordings in 1986. So in and around 1986, you have this punk scene happening as well that's attracting people from New York City, like Rick Rubin of Def Jam, who would come down to Washington, D.C. like all the time. 
come down on the bus, hang out, listen to our local music, and then go back up to New York and tell Russell Simmons that there's this thing happening in D.C. that's raw and funky and fresh and relevant. Compared to what Chuck Brown was doing, which was this sort of, you know, like uptown, jazz-influenced, classier style of music. Uh, the Junkyard Band were uh, raised in, in the, the Berry Farms Housing Project in southeast Washington, D.C. Uh, given that they were raised in Berry Farms, they did not have access to the same level of, mu- the same level of musical instruments that Chuck Brown had access to. They also didn't have access to the same level of musical education and background that Chuck Brown had access to. So instead of what you have with Chuck, you have a very different kind of thing happening with the Junkyard Band. They are influenced by Sardines, which isn't just, most people think that Sardines is just this song that kind of like came out of the blue and came out of nowhere. So here, here's the fact about Sardines. Sardines started as a song that kids would hear at summer camps along the Maryland Eastern Shore. So when you were in elementary school and you would go away to summer camp, like along with like your schoolmates, you would go to these like county-sponsored summer camps. And one of the big chants at the end of the night, when you would have like the bonfire, would be sardines and pork and beans. Do you know what that means? So this goes all the way from the Eastern Shore all the way to D.C. And this is probably something that these kids heard very young in their homes from either their grandparents or their aunts or their mothers or fathers or someone. So when they get and they're doing the same thing that Chuck is doing with the call and response, a call and response that makes sense in a neighborhood because everybody's got the same kind of like, you know, mother, father, grandfather, you know, everybody's kind of like from generally the same area. They say sardines and pork and beans, and everybody in the crowd already knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it's one of these like uniquely DC type of stories that I feel like speaks directly to the experience of Gogo. So I want to ask everybody on the panel about the importance of the call and response aspect to Gogo, and what style of Gogo do you prefer as well? Are you more of a fan of that kind of like jazzier influence thing or the thing that trended more for the case of Rick Rubin towards a more rap and inherently like pop driven thing? Oh, are we putting rap and pop? To- yeah, like in the sense that it's different from like a jazzier sort of style. Oh, okay. These are popular songs in like the covers that they do. Yeah, to say that I actually. Amen. That um, I went to summer camp in North Carolina where we did sardines. And really? So this is a thing? This is a thing. Okay. Amazing. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. so, does anyone want to start? Especially, let's talk about the call and response. Oh, well, I mean, I love the call and response. I mean, it, uh, to me, well, for me, call and response already comes from the church. Right. So, uh, you know, hearing that in Gogo and being at the Gogo. It's always been about audience participation, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, I guess to speak to the call responses, I think that's what I prefer most is that that audience participation. I think that's what pulled me in. So when I would think about, you know, three in the morning, the pancake house, mm-hmm. you know, like that energy, uh, you know, just you know, being felt felt like being 
being involved in the song, being there, yeah, as it was live and going on. And um, I think that was like one of the best parts of the jam was to be there and, you know, be connected to it, you know. And so, yeah. I'm going to speak to something that uh, Brianna always talks about, and that's getting put on, having your hood put on, or you as an individual getting put on at the show. Um, if that happened, I mean, that's also just the whole part of the whole call and response, you know, you getting shouted out. Yeah, explain, explain this whole notion. Okay, so let's say... Um, I was going to get to that, and you, you jumped right in line. That's, thank you. Okay, all right. So, you know, you, you, you getting shouted out, whether it's like, you know... What, what's, your, what's your name, Dior, at the, at the show? What, what, would they, what would they call you? Okay. You know what I mean? Like, see you, sweet D, or whatever, you know, and then you get all hyped, your, your girls get hyped, whatever, or like, you know, since we're like, we're, we're uh, Rhode Island Hamlet, so like, we're up the street from like Saratoga or something, so they shout out Saratoga, so everybody from Saratoga who's at the go-go, they gonna get hyped. You know, sometimes that could be a good thing. Sometimes it could be a bad thing. We don't, it, dep- it, de- it, depends upon, it depends upon the politics at the current time in these neighborhoods, but... You know, that was very important as well because that that was like a way also for these bands to show love for just the continued support. You know what I mean? And show like, you know, we are we are y'all. We come from the same place. We do this for y'all and we appreciate y'all coming out here. Even back when they was go go was like seven days a week, you can get PA tapes, CDs seven days a week from every single band. You know, we appreciate you coming to see us multiple times a week. We might be playing the same songs, all of that, but you're still here. You know, and for that, this is our thank you to you. Um, I think in regards to the call and response elements, I I agree with both points. Um, Certainly, like, Go-Go's roots in the black church, or black music in general, roots in the black church. Um, I mean, even going further back to, like, you know, music as a spiritual, ritualistic thing, that call and response is, is really important. That's part of what the West African drum is about, you know? So if we get into that element, like the percussion elements of go-go, you know, that comes from, you know, djembe and all these other, um, you know, West African percussion instruments that were made for that call and response. Uh, but specifically, I guess if you would, like what Geronimo was touching on as far as, you know, getting shouted out in the go-go, you know, it's about identity, it's about respect, mm-hmm. you know, a certain level of, of celebrity and representation I mean, if you think about where people were at at the time, um, majority felt unrepresented, you know what I'm saying, felt uh, invisible in a lot of sense. I mean, the government wasn't speaking up for them. Of course, Marion Barry was, but, like, the government that was running wasn't speaking up for them. So it's, like, part of uh, building your identity is, like, regional, like, tribal, where you at, where you from, Uh, you know, your family, who's your crew, you know, where are you, who's your crew, like... Representing that is a big part of representation for, um, you know, so that call and response is important for that. I mean, even as a musician, you know, getting that energy going, that's a big part of why GoGo was able to keep going, you know, because it's making the uh, audience at that point, you the entertainment too. So it wasn't just the call and response. It was also like the dancers, you come on stage or certain people being chosen. It was like a whole kind of ritual tradition thing that's like, everybody gets their time to shine in this party at some point. So whether it's you as a collective, your neighborhood, your crew, or you as, you know, an individual, if you got, you know, you might have been known in the streets, or you might have just been fly, whatever the case was, like, that level of representation is important. And, um, yeah, GoGo did that, you know, I think. 
I mean, to the second part, I guess nobody answered that. If we want to talk about, I guess, yeah, our favorite yeah. I figured, styles. I figured you could speak to this. Our favorite styles, at least. I guess, so I'm, I'm 30, so when I was in high school, and I, I was living in Northwest. No, nah, not even Bouncy. Well, yeah, UCB was, because I was um, around Kennedy Street. But really, Backyard was the band at that time for us. Um, so... That was like right on the cusp. You know, they had elements of what Junkyard was doing, elements of what Chuck was doing, then foreshadowed what was going to be next, next. That kind of, I guess, UCB and TCB came and ushered it in strong. But um, for me, Backyard, that was the sound. Um, it was heavy, and it reflected, like, DC in the 90s at that time. At that time it also yeah. reflected, like, you know, again... DC, our position, like, geographically is interesting. So we got, like, the East Coast music influences, West Coast, everything that's happening. I think, like, Big G and his band, like, they were watching what was happening in hip-hop at the time to know, like, all right, we got to be hard, but at the same time, we got to represent. We got to be musical. It's got to be sweet moments in this, too. It can't just be straight hitting them hard. And I think that's something that, like, even hip-hop artists didn't even fully figure out at that time. Yeah. You know, that's like, that's the formula. Like, it has to be something for the women to come and enjoy themselves. It's got to be something for the dudes to feel macho about, you know. So, Backyard, for me, in that time of me growing up, um, that was, like, the sound, I think, personally. Right. So, uh, let's, let's speed her our timeline a little bit. We're going to be going up till 1994. So, between 86 and 94, you have this explosion of go-go music into the mainstream. Like, Def Jam Recordings is working with Junkyard Band. Uh, there's a guy named Sean Puffy Combs. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He ends up at Howard University. He becomes a party promoter. I, I work in nightlife, so it's funny to like talk to people now who promoted parties in DC when Puffy was promoting it at Howard. And they're like, yeah, Puff went to everybody's party. He went to, like, the downtown party. He went to, like, the uptown party. He went to, like, the club party. He went to, like, the go-go party. So his influence, along with Andre Harrell at Uptown Records, gets Rare Essence, a band that we've spoken about, leads them getting signed to Uptown Records for a little bit in 1991. Uh, you get songs like Lock It and songs that were reflective intriguingly and Jamal began to speak about this of this hybrid sound between that harder edge sound that you heard from Junkyard with that really smooth jazz interpretation that you had from what Chuck Brown was doing. Chuck's still making music, everybody, you know, like he uh, he put out an album as well that was recorded live at the 930 Club mm -hmm. like, you know, just these are key moments What's intriguing about D.C. at this time is that the city is going through vast economic upheaval. Uh, we're at this point where Marion Barry is arrested, uh, famously, and uh, he goes away to prison, and uh, the city is really unable to move forward economically, and we start to regress. Uh, for African Americans in the city, there's a bit of a recession. There's not as much access to jobs, access to services, and things get rough. Things get very difficult. In the go-go scene, what happens at that point is that the parties begin to be cracked down upon by the police, by, you know, like, just general public opinion. You can speak to this as well. We'll talk to this a little bit. Like, that's a thing that's happening as well. And it's just a rougher vibe and a rougher scene. And in the midst of all of this, though, there's a band called Northeast Groovers 
that emerge in the midst of all of this, which is when you think about societally what was going on in the nation's capital at the time, the fact that a band could come together and they could actually play gigs and they could actually develop largely unfettered by a lot of the, the societal angst uh, is, is impressive. And uh, there's a song called The Water that I'm going to play to give you a sense of the style of music they made, which given the unique nature of what was happening in the city at the time, is, is made even more impressive. So here's The Water from Northeast Groovers. Just when you thought it was safe to swim. By Northeast Groovers. Uh, two things that are important to point out when you hear the water is that you get a sample of Gladys Knight and the Pips, Midnight Train to Georgia, mm-hmm. and you also get a sample of Aqua Boogie by Parliament. These are two bands that when you go all the way back to the beginning, like we were talking about in the late 1970s with Chuck Brown, were two bands that people played all of the time in the soul party scene in the city. So you have this group of kids 16 years later who are referencing something that is almost two decades old. And for them, is probably older than they are on some level. Which makes all of this really amazing to me. And I think it speaks to a level of musicality that for the youth... Uh, was was impressive, and so I want to open this up to the panel and talk about, you know, just kind of like youth culture in the city and the desire to be aware and intelligent and able to do such things. You want to go first? I mean, I was thinking about starting out the dress. Okay. But... Um, if you wanted to, well, if, start, starting at the dress, it was a, the sort of uniform, so, to, well, depending on where you were from. So I was um, uptown northeast. The reason why I say uptown northeast because that's near Fort Totten. Near, uh, I went to Calvin Coolidge for a little bit. Um, and uh, Michigan Park is pretty much mm-hmm. the neighborhood. So we were wearing, you know, everything from uh, princess sneaks to parasukos to tie-dye in our shirts. And what I liked was that... <laughs> And or, and or New Balance. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we were, we were creating our own style, so we weren't, like, on Instagram, no offense to Instagram, but we weren't on Instagram, you know, trying to put together our style. Like, we created beads and bracelets and shirts, tie 
tie-dye shirts uh, or, or shirts that, you know, reflected somebody who passed or our neighborhood as a representation. So to me, that was a part of the youthful culture that, you know, I was stepping into around 13, 14 years old. Level of inventiveness to that too. There's a level of inventiveness to that too, and, and I think that's what I want. That's what I want to speak to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The notion that in in DC, and this is the thing that everybody needs to understand, who's not native Washingtonian in here, because for native Washingtonians, it's something that's very, very obvious. Um, there's a level of invention and inventiveness and a desire to be uniquely inventive that is almost endemic to being from Washington, D.C. Like, you don't know how to do anything other than to be that kind of person. I think it goes without saying, because if you're creating your own wares, mm-hmm. and you're thir- 12 or 13 years old, you're not knocking on ones and pops sort of style, you're creating your own. I mean, that made us our own entrepreneurs, even at the time, because my friends were doing what, uh, what I'm saying about painting um, clothing, painting the Looney Tunes on our clothes. Mm-hmm. So we were paying our friends to hook us up, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So we were going to neighborhood stores like We Are One and uh, Madness and, say again? <laughs> yeah, Madness, We Are One. We were going to get our style from top to bottom and mm-hmm. in this style, uh, the clothing was handmade by most black entrepreneurs in the city, which at the time was around 2,200 yeah. of us. So GoGo was reflecting the style, the vibe and um, entrepreneurship and inspiring this independent culture that was in D.C. It was its own outside of, you know, Maryland and Virginia. You know, that helps. <laughs> so, um, that question just made me think about something. Everything you just said, Dio, made me think about how, with the whole inventiveness of, of style and how Gogo had an influence on that, um, I know for myself, um, growing up in PG County, just outside the city, um, close to Southeast, um, uh, I was lucky in that I was still able to be informed by the styles that were coming from, that were being created in the city or what have you. One set of style, one set of like a clothing trend I remember from when I was in high school was when we were actually doing like distressed and destroyed denim in DC before this became a thing. So I remember bleaching jeans, you know, I remember putting like, we would put like a bunch of holes, looking, making it look like bullet holes in our jeans or whatnot, you know, cutting them up. You know, we would do with the tie-dye shirts or any T-shirt, because this was before you got dressed to the nines to go to Go-Go's. You got yeah. dressed to sweat. So you, you, didn't, you wanted to be cool and fly based on whatever the trend was at the time, but you didn't want to put on your absolute best, because you had planned on sweating. You, somebody might step on your shoes, whatever. So you didn't want... But, like, even with the shirts, we would, like, cut... We would cut holes on the sides. We would do, like, tie, like, little... Stri- um, make little strips on the bottoms of the shirt, tie knots, things like that. We would do all those different things, you know what I mean? And um, it was fly. Our parents hated it because they're like, we spent all this money for you to just mess up these clothes like that. It's like, oh, Mr. Style, whatever. But um, I just thought about that. And like I said, all that came from the go-go's like because you saw people who were dressed like that as well in the shows, you know what I mean? Um, You know, with the women. Um, like you saw women wearing uh parasukos, bongos, um, <laughs> um what else? Uh, like you said, the freestyles, the the high top Reeboks, uh, all of that. Um, all these different things were taking place. Like I said, and it was very indicative of how influential go go the scene was inside of these buildings, inside of these shows. And, and, you know, I guess to your more complex point, right? Right. Okay, so even when a song was on the radio that was, like, hot at the time, Mm -hmm. 
our minds would automatically go into this crazy level of sense that just was like, yo, I can't wait till back hit that. Because when back hit that, <laughs> yes. it's going to be the same. Yes. It's going to be lit. And what well, we didn't say lit, but you know, it was, yes. it was going it was gonna to be like that. It's, it's going gonna gonna be, be, to be like that. It's going to be like that. Joint going to be like yeah. that. Because we, so we would all have already figured out on the bus, on the lunch table, how they going to hit it. That sound was yeah. going to hit. Yeah. And when it would come out, we'd be like, oh, because because a, a lot of people, that's how they even learned about a lot of rap songs, like through the Go Go's. Like when you sometimes you would be like, "Oh, that's a real song. Like that's an actual G- rap song." G- Make the point that we we were talking about this once, and you were talking about DC rappers and Go Go having that influence. Where for in hip hop, how like because DC was so influenced by hip hop mm-hmm. that as for DC to have a great rapper was a hard thing because DC rappers are so inspired by this go-go thing that's so in alien yes right yes yes i mean i mean pretty much like yeah. our some of our best lyricists came through the go-go so like fat rodney uh stinky dink DC Scorpio. Uh, more recently, you got a guy like Lowe's from Backyard, who I think is completely underrated. Um, he would take, they would do a, a, a cover of a rap song, and he just came up with his whole own verse. Had nothing to do with the song, the rapper. And I'm just like, dang, all right, Lowe's, I see you. You know what I mean? And like, just speaking once again to that inventiveness and that ingenuity right there, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's important to note as well. With the ability to ride in the pocket, mm-hmm. is that, you know, it wasn't just like, I mean, and I would love New York hip hop, I grew up listening to that as well, mm-hmm. but like, as opposed to just riding on the beat, but hitting in the percussion is what I feel like yes. our sound, you know, mm-hmm. when I heard a DC rapper spit versus someone from New York just being into that percussion, really hitting into the beat. Mm-hmm. You know, get into the pocket. Yeah, um. <laughs> um, I would say to the point, at least, you know, Gogo is youth music. Yeah. I think youth music is always inventing. Um, specifically with D.C., it's like we're a very important city, like, to ourselves. So we make sure that we, um, yes. you know, we don't want, yeah. we don't want to be compared to other cities, you know. Uh, so... You know, a big part of this is like it's a DC thing. We're not going to do what New York is doing. We're not going to do what anybody else is doing. So already, identity is a big thing. Um, and then you go to just youth music in general. Like if the Go Go's were the place where we were all meeting up at, then that's how culture, language, news was being exchanged. Mm-hmm. So this was the place where it was happening. Um, so that's how you know, of course, through the high schools and stuff, but directly like getting influence from different neighborhoods or, you know, people coming out from PG or a lot of times we would be going out to PG because when I was in high school, that's where the Go-Go's was pretty much happening. Um, But like that was the place where we shared styles and you see things happening. So it was like a scene, you know, it was a whole scene of like, all right, this was happening. And like, you know, you personalizing your stuff. It might say your neighborhood on it. Mm -hmm. Going back to if your homie passed, you know, you put on for that. So, uh, yeah, identity specifically through like clothing and how we wear things um, is really important. DC is a very sophisticated place um, in their minds. In our minds, we are very sophisticated, and uh, we are though. And um, you know, it reflects, I think, in how we carry ourselves. So you know, hip hop was this huge phenomenon, and of course, we can't ignore that it was happening, and we were hip to it. Our radio was playing it, so that's why you know the music would be a reflection of that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like. 
Gogo is taking hip hop through our lens. At least in that moment, it's like taking it through our perspective and putting it through that DC filter, you know. So um, yeah, just like inventing. I mean, invention comes from youth culture normally, anyway, to me at least. So as you see in these bands growing, and again, like you know, Backyard, which was my favorite band, is like you know they're reflecting what was happening, and they were. You know, regurgitating in a sense, not regurgitating, let me put it that way, but they were taking it in, cycling it, and recontextualizing. Recontextualizing, um, repurposing. Exactly. Yeah. Did you want anything, Brie? Uh, I think they covered it. Fabulous, fabulous, <laughs> fabulous. Okay, so pop music and go go have had a very fractious and entertaining history. We've, we've covered parts of it. And we've, we've danced around it and we've, you know, made inroads with it. But the next track that I'm going to play, if I played this anywhere else in the world, people would just know it as probably one of their five favorite rap songs of all time. And most people know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to play it. And everybody's going to probably have a big smile on their face or hate themselves. And we'll, we'll see what happens when I play it. And we'll talk more about it in context with the nation's capital. One, two, three, come on. We got DJ Cool and Duck get fresh. Rock it to the beat, cause we are the best. We got Dutchy Fresh and Vince Marquis. Hey. Rock it to the beat and the place to be. We got Vince Marquis and DJ 20. So hit me with your hoes and make that money. So that's DJ Cool's Let Me Clear My Throat. Uh, DJ Cool had a long history as a frontman in uh, Go Go. And so what's intriguing is that the, the label that releases Let Me Clear My Throat is Rick Rubin's American Recordings in 1996. And uh, the thing that makes this one in, in, intriguing to me, like I went to college, Providence College in Providence, Rhode Island. So I was way up north. And everybody knew that I was like the DC guy. Like I've always been a DC person my whole life. Like proudly. And uh, when this came out, everybody's like, yeah, I like this. And I'm like, wait, DJ Cool put out this song? I'm like, wait, this is a go-go song. And people like, oh my God, this is go-go. And they're like, no. All of my rap friends were like, the 900 number is in this. Like all these other like, iconic hip-hop samples are present they're like marcus like this isn't go-go like it's not mm -hmm. it's just not like i i mean I, we respect one. that the guy is from your hometown but <laughs> that's just not go-go like you, you you it's cool that you're happy but <laughs> no you gotta, you gotta cut it out like that's not okay so uh this is one of those line in the sand moments that's intriguing for go-go because this is i'll call this a go-go record because in the first 45 seconds of the song, it's all call and response, mm -hmm. and DJ Cool shouts out the entire world, <laughs> which would 
only a go-go lead front man would ever do. If given the opportunity to be on a song that's going to have global, like, you know, airplay and global distribution, any go-go front man worth his, his, his weight and shout-outs is going to do that. He's going to absolutely do that. So uh, I wanted to ask everybody on the panel about what was the first time you heard this, and did you have that moment? And have you ever had that moment when somebody's tried to tell you that this song is not organically tied to the nation's capital? And what that means. As the transplant, I yeah. have not had that moment of Right, right. But, but I wanted to ask you still, because <laughs> I know that this, this song, I'm sure, has a different level of meaning for you as well. Well, first of all, I will, I will grade your question to neither go-go nor hip-hop, because to me, it's literally a jock jam, and it was on jock jams like every <laughs> single one. Like, I was a cheerleader in for a long time, <laughs> and um, this was a cheerleading song to me, which is so funny in this context, but anyway. Um, I think, though, the fact that I don't think it's hip-hop or go-go speaks again to the inventiveness of it. Like, it's something else altogether. It's yet again someone from this area taking things that already exist and turning it into something that requires a different name. And I think in that way, it's spirited like Gogo. It's taking what Gogo taught him to do, but it's taking, it's even flipping Gogo itself into something else. And that would be my. I'd never heard that uh, growing up, but I didn't associate it to Gogo. I heard the song for years, you know what I'm saying? But I did not, I mean, there's some, there some elements in there, but I mean, I could definitely hear my neighborhood not, you know, saying say the same thing, you know, right. yeah, but. Yeah. I mean, for me, <clears throat> I just, I always just considered it a party song. I didn't wonder whether it was rap. I didn't, yeah, you just wonder, because the, just the way the song is constructed, you know, even though you pointed out all those core elements of Go-Go that he, he, he incorporated into the song. Um, but I remember even around that same time, he had another song that came out that was Go-Go. Yes, yes, definitely. I, I cannot remember the name of the song, but it, when I hear it, I know. Like, it was, it was through and through Go-Go. You know what I mean? Then this comes out, and this was the hit. You know what I mean? Um, it's funny, you know, he had Dougie Fresh on there. That Dougie Fresh was actually one of the, the few rappers in the 80s that uh, people in D.C. were actually, like, Okay with right. I wanted, I, I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm let Joel. You want to talk? Okay. So like, there's a thing about the history of hip hop and the history of go-go that's intriguing. Um, if you were a rap act in the '80s and you wanted to like play DC, you just couldn't come down and play DC and headline. Mm-hmm. Like Run DMC couldn't headline in Washington DC. They had to have Chuck Brown or junkyard or somebody with them like it's funny like and that's a thing like and that's until probably this era was a thing in the city if you were trying to be a rap act and trying to be popular everywhere else you could headline but when you came to one city that was very intrinsically important in in how you were perceived as a top musician you were yeah (laughs) 
you were yeah, you were not going to be the headliner. Like you were going to open for this act. So it's intriguing, almost like uh, things that I've learned and having done. I did this once, this kind of sit down once. And between this one and this one, I learned also about the fact that like one of the things about Junkyard being signed to Def Jam was that Def Jam was trying to arrange tours, and they knew that they needed a DC act to pair with all of these amazing acts that were tearing up everywhere else. They needed somebody from DC just because of the fact that when they came to DC, they wanted to make sure that it was still Def Jam affiliated. So it's like, okay, we know we have to have somebody from here. Like, and it can't be like the same way we do it somewhere else. It has to be the specific style of music and this specific kind of artist in this very unique way. And uh, that's, that's, I think that, that's the thing that speaks to DC as well. And I think that's something that and I want to ask you this question, and we'll get to the final song. Is that unique thing that makes DC such a thorn in people's sides in a way that only DC people tend to like? Mm-hmm. A, thing, a thing that is gone from the city now? Uh, I want Jamal to answer this question. First, I want him to be the first one to respond. You know, that's it's interesting even that you say, like, at that point, uh, you had to have uh, a D.C. band headline because now you rarely see a D.C. band even opening when these artists come here. So the culture is completely shifting in that sense. Um, and one thing, I guess, as a presenter or curator or show book or whatever you want to call it, like, I try to, you know, work in it. And one thing we talk about a lot is, like, shifting consumer culture again in D.C. Um, one more? Okay. Uh, yeah, because we were a live music city, and now we're dominated pretty much by the DJs, and, like, rap happens, but local rap scene isn't really thriving as it was. I guess that's a different conversation, but it's just interesting to see how um, that switched, because now it's, you know, you're barely going to see a go-go band performing in D.C., and when it comes to opening for you know, the top 40 acts, because they all come down here. They have to stop in D.C. Every major tour stops in D.C. or, like, the surrounding areas. So that's, I think, you know, I don't even know if I have the answer for it, but it's something worth discussing further is, like, all right, well, what happened to that shift when, like, it was so integral to have not just local support, but, like, that was the thing. Either the local band be headlining or, you know, it would be a co-headline, like seeing Scarface and Backyard. Like, that's not rare to see, with, you know, in the time. Uh, now it's a lot more rare, but... Um, Scarface just played with Backyard, by the way, at the Howard Theater. I just want to point exactly. this out. Yeah, you still, you still get that show happening regularly. 20 yeah, regularly, years sure. later, yeah. the exact same show goes on. But I think, um, I guess, I, I know I'm jumping around, but right now popular music in general is shifting from uh, uh, being regionally based or geographically based, um, which is kind of like, you know, can be viewed as a gift or curse. Um, the sounds are becoming more global and more, a little bit more homogenized. So as that's happening, I mean, on one side, for me, it's like even more reason to fight for some sort of regional identity and what I create and, you know, pushing for that and my friends. But, I mean, it's just reflective of the time, you know, um, which is even why, like, when I heard the name of the panel was like, Go-Go as DC history. I'm like, damn, are we here to, you know what I'm saying, eulogize Go-Go? I, and <laughs> for real. Not um, really, though. But, but really, that's a real question, because um, music, popular music is becoming less, less geographic, less regional. So, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know if I answered the question, but it's just, like, thoughts I had specifically on it. 
And I even think in the late 90s, early 2000s, when um, Backyard or any band or any, any major artist would come into the city, they would still perform with the go-go band. So at, it, it, Ice Cube. Mm-hmm. When Ice Cube first came to the D.C. area, this is when Ice Cube was the largest rapper in the world. N.W.A. were the, the hottest act in the whole universe. He played with Backyard. Right. Ice Cube, when he was jacket for beats, when he was steady mobbing, when he was the man, he had the common sense to come to DC and have a go-go band back him, mm-hmm. like without even really a DJ. It was like Ice Cube and a band, only in this market, because that's 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 the the notion of how unique DC is, and that that's just that's one of those fascinating little facts. Respect from its residents, right? Get in with the go-go band, with the go-go scene. So uh, we've spoken about this band a number of times, and uh, it's the final uh, song that I want to play. Um, Go-Go covers, we've also talked about a lot as a thing. Uh, Rare Essence did a version of uh, Ashley Simpson's Pieces of Me that I will... That's one of the best Go-Go covers. That I will vouch for, <laughs> that I will vouch for as being better <laughs> That I will vouch for as being better than Ashley Simpson's actual yes. Pieces yes. of Me. <laughs> So there's and there's a there's a history of this when Chuck Brown did it and Rare Essence has done it and pretty much any go-go band you can think of has at least ten amazing covers in their collection and that speaks to the uniqueness and the inventiveness and the, the progressive youth culture and all these things that we have spoken about that in a lot of ways are very unique to DC in the way that they are performed or shown in, uh, in, in popular culture. So uh, saying all this to say that we're, uh, we're going to play um, Backyard Band's cover of Adele's Hello, which I feel is important because it came out in 2016 at a time where there are fewer African-American people in the city than have ever been before, and you end up with this song that comes out, and it is this bizarre commingling of so many things that are past, present, and future of the city, and it, it was written about in the Atlantic, which is bananas, because it's like, well, why do you guys care about Go-Go? Well, because the song is great. <laughs> so here's our Backyard Bands cover of Hello. That is a mere snippet of uh, Backyard Band's Hello. 
Um, I want to read a little bit from the uh, the Washington. Uh, that's not from the Washington Post. It's from uh, WAMU's Bandwidth about the creation of the song. Uh, Tiffany White, one of Backyard Band's lead singers and an avid Adele fan, says she approached her bandmates with the idea for the song around last November's release of the British singer's album Twenty Five. The band listened to Hello during a rehearsal and started messing around with it. <laughs> Trying out different tempos and cadences. And one big G Glover, Backyard's lead talker, realized it would make for a good cover. The beat was so funky, he says. Everyone was like, oh, we feel it. Backyard practiced the song one night and then played it live the next day. Glover, in typical go go fashion, started shouting out different Washington neighborhoods. And White responded each time by singing out, hello. A nuance that the band that stuck with the band in later renditions. So again, I want to point out that the backyard band heard Adele's "Hello," then they sat with it and messed around with it. Then one night later, played a version that sounds probably roughly like the version that you hear right there, which everything is in time, everything is in sync, everything is in place. There are progressions, there are changes, there's a vocal in there that is unique and unto itself and works well with the, the cadence of tempo and construction of the track. So uh, I think that speaks to, if there's any one thing, and I always tell people this about the nation's capital, if, if you end up with 12 black people left in Washington, D.C., these 12 black people, if for by no other reason they are from Washington, D.C., you have native Washingtonians, will be able to do that type of musicality given an amount of time. Because I think that speaks to something about people from D.C. in the sense that if you give us something that's great, our only desire in the world is to try to make it not even just by a factor of one times greater, but like 10 to 100 times greater, if only so that we could sit around and walk down the street and look at each other and go, you remember that one time we did that Adele song and it was like better than Adele song? <laughs> and, and everybody who's a native Washingtonian would agree, right? This is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I uh, wanted to uh, turn this to the panel and uh, ask about uh, this song in particular, the nature of... Uh, what that means, I guess, in context of Washington, D.C. at this point. Well, I want to say, even though, and I, I'll go on record saying this, you know, Backyard is, is one of my three favorite bands. However, I wasn't the biggest fan of this song. Um, I just wasn't. But I did recognize that, one, it had been a long time since we had a go-go hit on the radio. Um, like, it had been a minute. And... Right. So even with that, like, look how many years have gone by. But to once again be out on the streets, you hear the song on the radio all the time. You hear everybody playing it from their cars. You have somebody's function, whatever you're hearing this song. Like at a time when, like you said, the city is is, is changing um, dramatically, dress, you know what I mean? And um even just to be able to have that piece, that that feeling, restore that feeling that when there was cons- consecutive, consistent go-go hits. 
Yeah, I feel like there's something right about this that's cool too, in the sense that it was like Adele's "Hello," so like it's a song that has immense crossover potential. It's the kind of song that like I like, and that you have a favorite Adele song, right? Oh, but, but you have a but you have a passing you have a passing awareness of Adele, right? You have a passing awareness of Adele. You have a passing awareness of Adele. You do, you do, I do, you do as well, right? We all can walk down the street and go, Maggie, you and I, we both know an Adele song, right? Right. I know how though. Exactly. <laughs> but that's what I mean. It's the kind of... Right. It's that moment where, it's that moment where, like, and this version is so good, and this is an actual thing that happened. I was, like, walking down, like, 7th Street over by the the... the the, the central communications. Central communications. And there was this moment where, like, I'm walking down the street, and there's, like, this very straight-laced, like, you know, like, older Caucasian, like, businesswoman walking down the street. We were walking down the street. I'm going this way. She's coming this way. We stopped at the same point, and we heard the song, and we both smiled at each other, and we nodded, like, that is a damned fine song. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and it was this moment, I'm like, I was like, and there are moments that happen to me on a daily basis, at least like one a day, where something will strike me and I'm like, wow. Like maybe this is not terrifying and frightening and brain melting, you know, for being a native Washingtonian. Like maybe there are things that are so deep, deeply ingrained in the culture that are approachable for anybody to appreciate mm-hmm. that may make some of this tenable. If not easy, maybe understandable. And creation, creating of a, of, of a different, of a new way for people to be able, or, or a progressed way for people to be able to communicate in this city, given where we're going. So I'm just... That's just something I want to add. No, no. Yeah. I agree. We can <laughs> I mean, I, I loved, uh, well, I'm not a big fan of Adele. Um, <laughs> I do like uh, the song Hello, and I thought Hello was a beautiful song. Uh, when I hit the, heard the go-go version, that's what won me. I, I mean, and hearing it, hearing Hello all over the radio already, and then the go-go version hit it, mm-hmm. you know, I, I knew nothing else. I actually got to see them perform that at the Fillmore opening up for the game. So that's another person who, you know, I think, actually I think WPGC was planning the show, so they try to always make sure that go-go is being presented in this day's uh, opening for artists, as the tradition is, um, in D.C., so, um, but yeah, I, I loved it. I loved the elements, and it was the same thing. It was like, wow, you know, how how would how would back hit this? Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> took it to another level. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is your favorite band, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, for one, it shows the growth of like backyard and go go in general. Like go go from that certain generation is growing up, you know. So backyard doesn't have to just be the street band anymore, mm-hmm. and which is really important. It's like them of all bands, backyard taking like this universally accepted pop record and then putting like their soul on it. Um, I mean, for me, uh, it definitely shows like a glimmer of hope. Not only just for go go as an art form, but in general, is like a glimmer of what's left of D.C. culture. And I don't even want to say what's left because it's not gone. I was at Chuck Brown Day last year, and this place, this field back behind us was packed, and it was love. And I don't think enough of that maybe gets reflected, um, like how much, you know, there are 
archivists of this culture. The only difference is, is like a lot of them don't work at the Washington Post or something. It's like the people that have been archiving a culture. Um, so I think, you know, maybe leaving from this and in this panel and, and what's happening with the GoGo archive clearly is saying like, yo, we need to capture these things as they're happening and, you know, collect as much information as we can to leave context for people. Um, but I think as a time capsule, for where Gogo has been and where it could go, I think that song is a good, you know, is a good marker for that. Because it's again a Gogo tradition. Like covers is nothing new. Um, that song specifically reminds me of like the whole U Street era. I, I'll call it the Love Jones era for me, but it's just like that. Um, you know, the 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 R and B soul club with the spoken word going on. I mean, when we talk about like. Gogo's history and trajectory, I think that, like the soul music and then like the neo soul era is a big part of like Gogo's evolution as well, just as hip hop was. Um, and we were having a whole thing parallel to that when, when Neo, when, you know, Badu and D'Angelo, all these people, like those are the same people, the roots, they had to come down here and work. And that's why the roots do their thing here every New Year's or whatever it is. But I just say that to say, like, this song. It reflects, like, for me, what I felt U Street was, and I think Dior and her music still reflects a lot of that spirit um, of just, like, this soulful thing that is DC music, and it's all infused in Go-Go. And, again, it's just important for a band, like a harder-edged band like Backyard, to embrace that and be like, look, this is how we're doing it. We've grown up, our fans have grown up, got careers, got kids now, so we have to approach it differently. And maybe that, with that type of thinking, maybe some of the younger bands could see that and, yeah. and take it up. You know? And I'm so glad you brought up the Love Jones era because the Love Jones era, I would say, Gogo was heavily influencing the industry. So you had A. Marie uh, doing songs like "It's Just One Thing," this, and, you know what I'm saying? Right. She had, that was actually on her second album, but her first album was. Um, she, a. Marie's from D.C. She studied at Georgetown and then ended up being, um, I think I think she was a uh, she was a hit artist, but I'm trying to know if she uh, was from D.C. Yeah, Rich Harris. Yeah, Rich Harris D.C. So, um, and her sound was influencing Beyonce at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, her sound, uh, yeah, so, so we, during that time, we also had Jill Scott, like you were saying, uh, and she was sampling um, her hit, you know, as well. So, yeah, there was a there was a certain vibe when when Gogo was out during the '90s heavily mm-hmm. that we were really creating the um, industry and creating sound. So I wanted to ask you, Bree. Final question: um, When was the first time you heard a Gogo song? You went to you went to Howard, right? You're a Howard grad, mm-hmm. yeah. So when was the first time you heard a Gogo song? And what was the thing that made the genre stick to you as a person? I was definitely. I came to DC in 2008, so that's when Bounce Beat was like everywhere, and that's the go-go I love. Um, I consider Bounce Beat kind of to be like the trap music of go-go. Like it got it got the bad <laughs> reputation. All the old heads were like, "It's ruining everything." I'm like, "This joint lit." So uh, probably maybe reaction Gucci bandana. No, no, no. I take that back. I take that back. That's revisionist. That is my song though. Um, <laughs> I guess the obvious answer, because Howard loved it, colleges loved it, was CCB My Fatty, which it got overplayed a lot, so now I'm just kind of over it. <laughs> um, Sexy Lady, UCB, My Fatty, CCB were definitely probably early on, and then I got into Bounce Beat and like, XIB and Reaction. 
all of that when people were having go go's at like the little party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <that was> nice. <laughs> so I don't know. I think what kept me was I don't know, like maybe the call and response element. As we see, I am preoccupied with getting staff. Um, I think the call and response automatically makes it, like, everyone wants to be involved in the music. Like, the call and response, um, being from the South, kind of correlates with, like, crunk music, when, like, essentially, Little John would come on and shout out the sides, and then the party would be over, because everyone got a little enthusiastic about it. But, um, I don't know, it just kind of spoke to me. It was unlike anything I'd ever heard. I think... I believe in kind of cellular memory for black people and black music, that like when you hear certain things that mm-hmm. black people have made, some part of it is going to speak to you even if you've never heard it before. Mm. And like the drums, like you were saying, like there's something very ancestral about Go-Go Absolutely. that I think when you hear it, at least if you're susceptible to it, it's going to stick with you. You're going to love it. And I love the people who made it. You're going to love the culture it comes from. And yeah. So uh, that, that kind of closes out what we're doing. I mean, do, do we have time for a couple questions? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I just wanted. I just wanted to say, like, we went from we went from Chuck to Junkyard to Groovers to Backyard. You know, and we we've covered uh, DJ Cool. We've covered a, the, a lot of the history of GoGo. So for people who are brand new to Washington D.C., we've given you kind of like a good run of things and. Uh, I want to ask, you know, for any questions from the audience. Hi, um, Andrew, Edgell, nice to meet everybody. Um, quick, not a question, comment, I'm sorry. Um, but just to add on to your point about the creativity of Washingtonians, um, I'm an educator, um, worked at Neville Thomas Elementary, um, and I did a project with the students uh, where we had to do a remix to the jingle of the Michael and Sons. I know you guys like it's that that annoying jingle you hear it all the time. But we were we were um, filming a fourth grade classroom doing the remix, and I just kept the camera rolling, and just it's just it was so interesting, just their ability to ad lib and add to the add to um, the video, the film. It was so much better than anything that I could have even come up with, and that was just off the cuff, um, and that creativity was. Um, which is something that I just wanted to bring up, and it's really important, you know, to include the youth, you know, in that transition, you know. This, as, as a community, we need to build our youth, um, and I think it's vital that we include this music with that, so. All right, my friend. Everybody, uh, the first time I heard about the Go-Go music is when I came to the podcast. <laughs> so I have no, like real distinguished understanding of it. Like, to be able to say... It's beautiful. It, you know, it's, it's hard for me to really be like, is this a go-go song? Is this a go-go song? So my question is the do-it-in-the-butt song. You know, do-it-in-the-butt. Not, not yeah. do-it-in-the-butt. 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 Is that a go-go song? Yes, that yes, is yes, a go-go yes. song. Yes, right. yes, yes. yes that's a go-go Absolutely. Song. All right. <laughs> Absolutely a go-go song. Experience Unlimited. EU had been around since like 76. That's like they are like 10 years in, and they did it for the School Day soundtrack, and it's an iconic, it's an iconic go-go song. I'm sorry. I was going to switch members of EU and Captain Martin. Brother. 
Valley Green, County Terrace area, and um, uh, Charles Stevens was our first manager. I love him. He's in North Carolina, but right. I just want to say he's an authoritarian to me on, yeah. on the history yeah. of Go-Go. Yeah. But one of the Absolutely. things he used to do was because Charles Stevens and Malik Edwards mm-hmm. got Malcolm X Street named over there, and Malcolm X Park, we used, I mean, we used to do Malcolm X Day. Right. He made us conscious don't also of the environment in D.C., so we saw a lot of things in a colonial sense, because D.C. is a colony, y'all. Right. Okay? And we saw that, that there were certain boundaries we went over, but we kept it in the pocket. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things was he, he wanted us, because he got us from, like, high, high school before we even got to Baloo. And what he did was, <laughs> what he did was wanted us to be refined. Right. Okay, he wanted us to be able to go to D.C. or Las Vegas. And so uh, I just wanted to give that shout out to my, my beloved Charles Stevens, but Absolutely. also, well, there's Gregory Ellett, which he looks a little bit like Sugar Bear uh, <laughs> when he was young. When he was young. Uh-huh. And, uh, but we were, it's also a regional thing because uh, a lot of these bands like Chuck Brown, who we did things with, and all these guys, you know, Sir Joe and all these guys, we knew where we were, okay? And then we had managers right. that knew where we were, so we knew we had to get opportunities to be at the, the old Howard Theater or, you know, Masonic Hall things and all yeah. that. And so yeah. we made gigs. Yeah. Actually, we actually played a couple of times free down in Conner Tourist, which was a real rough area, but we grew up there, you know, in the yeah. and we did yeah. free gigs. We just bring band equipment out and play. Yeah. So I just want folks to know that the music... Also speaks to these uh, economic and political yes, situation absolutely. of Washingtonians, and not yes. just the social and cultural. Because once you get people aware and putting music together, and you got people who are managing them that are aware and conscious of a struggle that we have to be about, not only you know as a people, but made sure that we realized it, and so we were, I think, a little bit more educated. And and and, and many times, you know. Uh, Talking to Chuck, Chuck was very not he was really aware of the situation yeah. in DC and all the circumstances. Mm-hmm. So we had to be proper and we had to keep our thing tight. But you know, uh, at many times we were like, "Hold on, man, we want to get down." I mean, we really want to say something. And I think that you had the kind of nuance where people even made mock fun. Yeah. Like at one point, it was a dance going like shaking like a white girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of these things were. To let folks know, listen, we know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because many of us were famous of the late Marion Barry. You yeah. know, he would be coming to the shows. Yeah. So, you know, by us knowing that and knowing the politicalization of how we were coming, we were ready. We were ready. But as you know, you know, Parliament did Chocolate City. We knew it was Chocolate City. And he said the white suburbs, but no one, no, we didn't see the rapid change of Chocolate yeah. City being... You know, like Mopo, what it is now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just want to give a shout out to those folks. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yes, sir. S- since you were around at that time, um, and you're from Conda Terrace, um, do you remember or were you around when um, Bad Brains did the Rock Against Racism concert yes, at, at, yes, at Valley Terrace? Yes, yes. Uh, 1979? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We was, that was a good time, man. Okay. And that's the time when you, you had that alternative sound mixing with go-go groups yes, as well. Yes, yes. 930 Club gave a lot of props. I gave them a lot of props on the fact to make sure that we had venues there and did things with groups that were coming in that we learned more through the industry. It's really about the industries too. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things about D.C., it doesn't have the industry that New York has or Jersey has right. or right. L.A. has right. or, or right. Miami has. And so it was a lot of things that we had to come and jump over the hurdle. Yes, it was a lot Absolutely. of hurdles for us. Uh, exactly. Carl, I'm going to take you to a go-go, man. 
I'm gonna take you. I'm gonna take you. <laughs> okay. Don't yes, sir. <laughs> Hello. Oh. Uh, how's everyone doing? Um, I just want to make a couple of points. Um, one of the first. Um, <laughs> what's happening? Uh, one of the first um, recollections of go-go music I have. Um, I remember my mom. My mom was born in 1938, and she would play uh, a song called Bustin' Loose by Chuck Brown. I feel like Bustin' Loose. And I remember the reaction of her friends and, you know, her brothers and sisters when that song came on. It was a different kind of a, of energy in the air um, when, when that song played. And I remember my mom always told me that. Um, as I got older, I started liking my own bands like Back and Junk and, you know, how great how great they were. She always told me the musicianship of Chuck and that band and how they played was so, so different than how a lot of the new bands are. You know, it was more, much more gritty and more grimy, which I liked because I came from a hip-hop perspective. But um, I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that Bustin' Loose was a crazy record and yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, still is if you play that record for a certain people you know they'll go back to you know when they was in their youth so yeah. there's this uh, there's a cool thing that, that Complex did I think it was Complex or Fader Fader did it they were uh, they interviewed Nelly about the making of Hot in Here and they were talking about when they, they sat in the studio and they were like playing samples for records and they played they played Bustin' Loose and the entire room Began to dance, and at that point they're like, "Oh, we, we got something here. Like we're gonna we're gonna take this and, and use it because that was the one." Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Real quick, um, one of the things that Charles Stevens puts on one of his books, and, and that's what he that told us, explained to us, is that go go. And the instruments from Africa, go go, are kin, not only because we are African descent, because of the rhythm itself allows itself for you to do almost uh -huh. like, uh -huh. like, like, an event, like a spiritual kind yes. of like, yes. you know, and, 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 and you can just keep going because the beat yeah. is a very fundamental and sometimes that primitive beat, yeah. but ancestral beat. Yeah. Sometimes you get confused about it because uh -huh. primitive means to try that it, it's. Yeah. Ties to it, you know, that, it, it, yeah. that it's not developed or anything. But it's a developed beat because it's been done in Africa for centuries. And that go, um, the go go bell mm -hmm. is a go go. Mm -hmm. It's a go go. The cowbell. Yeah, the cowbell. Yeah. I just want to say, uh, I was remiss earlier. My name is Kenny Gasper. I work at Woodridge Library. I was remiss in uh, introducing uh, Miss Margaret Gilmore, who's our uh, yes. program. Yes. 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 So I do apologize for the beginning of that one. I would like to um, just take the time when people got late. Say that uh, we have some more programming this week, which includes uh, uh, some film showing on Saturday. Uh, Chuck Brown Day is in the park. Uh, Saturday the 19th from 3 to 7. We're showing movies from 11 to 2 here, including uh, Chuck live at uh, the 930 Club. Uh, I think it was 2001. And also uh, the, cool, the legend of Cool Disco Dan. So we're showing that Saturday. Awesome. Uh, Sunday, there's going to be a pair Okay, yeah, Saturday morning at the, at the 930 Club, they are holding a. Uh, Public memorial for Cool Disco Dan. Uh, Trouble Funk will be there. Rare Essence will be there. Okay. Uh, a number of folks will be there. So uh, definitely, if you're interested in going out to uh, 
memorialize the, uh, the memory of Cool Disco Dan, that is happening. And what I like to do is just talk about some reminiscences myself. I think you talked about earlier about people over 21, who under 21 back in 86, 86. right. And so I think that um, the Adele song, the uh, Pieces of Me, that is uh, that kind of right in the middle for the, we call it grown and sexy. Yeah. Those individuals yeah. who are go-go, right. who are a little older now, so we want something a little bit more mellow, not as hard, not as rough. So I think that... Um, the pieces of me and Adele, I'm not, I'm not the gentleman right here, I'm not a big fan of the hello, but I get it. Because yeah. it makes the people who grew up on Go-Go, hey, this avenue, I can go there and shake my thing, do my thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Another thing I want to talk about was the, um, the politicization of Go-Go. Um, I graduated from high school in 82, uh, lived in D.C., but moved out to Maryland. I can recall us student government trying to implore them to get us a Go-Go band for our, uh, our prom. You know, we were told by administration you couldn't do it. So imagine my surprise going to Omni Shoreham Hotel by the zoo, and uh, T.C. Williams has rare essence there. So the point I make is that Go-Go permeated uh, all the community, maybe not as much because, of course, the, um, the violence, so to speak, attached to it. So I can remember going to the Paragon. And I would say, I'm not going to say it was the, I'm not saying it was the incident that, precipitated a lot of that, but I can recall uh, someone got stabbed in the parking lot of the Paragon. Paragon is at Georgetown. Um, and it was like the mid-80s, and I think that that, probably some other things were going on, that kind of changed the tone of how they were felt about security. Wow. And uh, own, uh, club owners not wanting to have go-go's in D.C. And I think it's a disservice to the go-go yeah. bands now because they don't have as many avenues, as you said. Right. CFE, and then they go to all the Waldorf and places like that. I got a cousin, somebody who plays gospel go-go. I'm like, where are you playing at? I'm out in Waldorf somewhere. I don't even know where the heck. Yeah, exactly. St. Mary's County. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> but I know where Waldorf is, so far removed from D.C. So I just want to keep in mind that uh, this is part of the go-go experience of D.C. And, uh, and coming about people like yourselves to keep that out there. And hopefully these uh, club owners will get with the program and bring D.C. Yeah. Uh, go-go back to D.C. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, sir. Hey, how you doing? Hey, um, I'm just going to say my first recollection of hearing Go-Go was 1978 on WOK100, and it was busting loose. Okay, and then the first time actually going to a live show or playing in it was 1981, 82 or something like that. So you're talking about like places like the Taj Mahal, you know, the Black Hole, uh, the Ibex, which... Black Hole. Yeah, I could tell you all about that later. Um, yeah, Ibex was a little crazy because, like every other week, there was some sort of homicide or something like that. Um, I mean, I actually, I'm a musician, so I actually played some places. There was one time where somebody actually did pull out an Uzi and fire it up in the air, that kind of thing. But for the most part, m- most people were really cool. Um, also, I remember I thought uh, Go Go hit the big time when it was Transformers, Go Go in Disguise. Oh, that okay, was okay. I know that song. I've, I've heard that song before. Yeah, no, you re-examine that one. Okay. If you want to hear Go-Go, that's, that's Go-Go. And, of course, being around as long as I have, I've observed the differences. You know, like when Trouble Funk was coming out and, and all this, it was the, the beat was faster, okay? And because it was still coming out of like kind of like the disco era and the rock era. Also, another anecdote is like, a lot of these guys that are in the go-go, you know, you hear them playing go-go, but they also really like rock a lot. I mean, a lot. White Boy from Rare Essence is called White Boy because he was a fan of rock and roll. That is a true story, and that is how he earned his nickname. 
Right, but he's not the only one. Sugar Bear, yeah. Big Tony, Tino. That's why Exactly, exactly, exactly. And Tino's still doing the stuff, so it's just like, you know. Um, but yeah, so there, there's a big, con- especially down like at Wilmer's Park. So it used to be out in all of Wilmer's Park, and it would be like Metal Night, Friday night, or Saturday night, it depends, and then Metal Night the other night. And sometimes I'd be both nights. But it, it was like everybody kind of knew each other. Everybody was playing around. And, and a lot of people don't know that, that some of the people that are on like more famous artists, out and stuff like that, they started out in Go-Go. There's a, one I can remember, uh, Federico Pena. He was back in the day at the beginning with Go-Go. You know, he came Michelle and Deggie Otello? Yes, Michelle Johnson, for those who don't know, and Jacques, her brother, and all that. Um, yeah, and so they, you know, they had pleasure. If that's who you talk about. There was Beth and Gail and all them in that too. But they um, all loved rock. I mean, all did. I mean, I remember it was 1985, and it was up in Laurel. They're up at a Pilates High School, and I was I was young. I was playing, opening up for uh, um, for EU, and we were doing a, what was it, was it YYZ or some Rush? They were doing a Rush cover for the sound check. And I, I was like, oh, so I'm not the only weird one. It was like everybody doing it, not just my friends, it was everybody who still did that, you know, and it, it still goes on, and it's not dead, it's just kind of out in PG County, just look for grown and sexy or something like that, it's, it's still there, it's still there. <laughs> I actually have another question for the panelists um, and Marcus too. Some of that violent association was brought up in the last two two folks here. Do you think right now um, go-go as a genre has a little bit of room to breathe and come out of and emerge from that association? I think it already... um I mean, right now, I've been going to Go-Go's uh, Halftime Sports Bar on 8th Street. I mean, it's so there's definitely Go-Go bands playing the city. I go to Silver Spring on Georgia Avenue, go to Go-Go all the time, see Subtle Thoughts at Tacoma Station in D.C., you know what I'm saying? So I'm, it's, Go-Go is definitely um, in the city, and it's opened up. Um, I just I, th- I think that it didn't have the support it needed in the in the early 2000s, late 90s, for it to maintain its space. Uh, I think, you know, the the city was trying to appeal to a lot of the gentrification that was coming in. So I was going to see Gogo's all the way out out in, what, Branch Avenue. I was going out to the Waldorf shows. (laughs) Yeah, I was out there to to see bands because we were seriously loyal. I mean, they would be so packed that if you didn't get there on time, it would be $40 at the door. So or lines outside, so we were definitely um, loyal uh, to seeing go-go uh, bands. But uh, um, is it really accepted? I mean, like uh, uh, Jamal was saying earlier, you know, questioning this whole eulogy on, you know, th- what this whole thing is about now. You know, it, it it shouldn't be something boxed away or put away. I think even we were trying to reminisce just now on. Uh, what Gogo did for us coming up, and we're calling. Oh, that's right. You know, we did do that, and et cetera. So I do. There's there's an opening, um, but it's not it, to me. It's not getting the love and attention uh, that it needs. Um, I think you know we're honoring a lot of people past, but there's like new young bands that are out. There are songs. There, you know, there. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's getting 
that love, but there is definitely a ability for us to look at it and open it up and also to allow it to cross genres. Socially acceptable yeah. to yeah. be easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't foresee like the bounce beat bands really being. I don't even know if they exist anymore, honestly. But I But yeah, I don't. I don't foresee them probably coming back into the city because um, at the time it was very easy to see flyers like, everywhere. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. You didn't have to work hard. You, you just knew. And now, you know, I, the grown and sexy flyers are around in cell phones and all of the kinds of things, but I haven't seen like an XIV flyer in quite a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a sense that Go Go to me is cultural music. And I think that that's something that, like, when I do things like this, the, the, the intent is that I want the cultural space for Go Go as a, a leader in how culture redefines itself in the city to still exist. I think that that is one of the intriguing parts about where the city is headed is that there isn't a space yet musically for where music has joined with whatever this culture is going to become and take it to where it's going to go. I feel like for years in DC, great go-go songs defined our culture. And again, doing this kind of stuff for me hopes to inform people with the fact that great go-go songs can still define this culture. I don't think that the song has been I don't think the song has been made yet. I don't think the cover has existed yet. I think that the the reason I played the Adele is I felt like that was like a, a, a reminiscent point for most people to be like, oh, we can still do that. That's right. Yeah, we can still make covers, and it's cool. But I feel like the the culture is so tied to the music that once we, we get those two, thing, two things together, it's new culture. Because we don't know what it's going to be yet because there's brand new people here. Mm. And, and to me, once you can join GoGo with these new people and introduce GoGo to these new people and give it to them in a way that is safe, sane, and sustainable, then you really get to start talking about something. So that, to me, is the, the point of intrigue. Uh, we could do that. Mm. I think we have to wrap it up. Sorry, are there any more questions? Sorry, do you have another? I was just going to say, I don't think we should say safe or, you know, it's, you know, safe or any, any genre. I think, well, I I think mean, the music... To me, to I, mean, me, as I, just as want, I just don't, I just don't want people to walk into a, a club and feel the desire that a lot of us felt when we went to Go-Go's in the 90s where you went in, you were getting patted down and you're like... Yeah, well because I feel I that, that right. was the I feel like that was the oppression put on a lot of different things. I think I honestly think it was more systematic than anything because to allow it to breathe and because I mean I've seen back at Howard right. you know, theaters so you know I think it's just allowing it to breathe and allowing any art, you yeah. know, giving it that loving space. Right. I don't and that's think what I mean, and that's what I mean by that, safety. Yeah. I wanted to be able to like have yeah. that kind of space that it's yeah, a safe yeah. space in yeah. which to yeah. expand. Yeah, that's safe space for us. I just have one thing. To her point, where you say that uh, you make it safe and sustainable, nowadays the police are at every go-go. Yeah. See, I'm her era. I'm, yeah. I'm yeah. bounce beat. But I love familiar faces. Yeah. That's who I like yeah, to see. So when I go to familiar faces, yeah. I'm partying with y'all. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. It's very less yeah. that I see a 24-year-old in there doing what he do to the two-step. 
So when you go to them kind of shows because of the age and the, the jobs that they have, the, the lives that they have, you see less problems. When you get to our age, I mean, you know, we barely take care of our kids if we want to be honest. You know, so I'm just, I mean, we're real. So, like, I, I, I work and I do audio. So I do these go-go mm-hmm. bands and I see the shift of, of people. Now, when you get kids that come in there, they're actually coming to party. Mm-hmm. They may mm-hmm. drink and get, you know, turned up or whatever the case may be. We ain't fighting no more. Right. If we are right. fighting, right. we yeah. fighting each other that are yeah. with us. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, when you shot out of the hood, it's two people that say, hey, back then, you had all of us over here from quarters, all of us Bobby. over here from Rhode Island Avenue. <laughs> yep. And yep. if exactly. you say that too much, that's the problem. But now, yep. we don't have that. So now, we need is venues. Yeah. Venues and yeah. avenues exactly. to bring these people in. Yeah. Like, like she said, DC, you, you, you could walk down the street and see 30 flies on the street. Now, on Instagram, you see one the next minute is canceled. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's just avenues and venues. Exactly. It's not about safety no more. We don't fight. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? We get turned up, you know, and the more, majority of the problem, sorry females, but they, the, the liquor, they can't handle it. <laughs> that, that's where it be because, down, you know, gentlemen, no, I mean, <laughs> in, in my, in my area, gentlemen, body, race, and that's what they do. But if we got more venues and avenues, absolutely, we'll yeah. be better off. We'll be better off. And I agree with go, that being go-go and hip-hop, like, you know, allowing those spaces to happen and venues for us to create and not being a stigma, you know, or, or you know, being stereotyped in that space. Yeah. No, I, I just want to say this real quick on, on to that point. Um, I agree. I think it's venues, access. Um, you know, you want to see go-go on bills that aren't just go-go. Yeah. I mean... You know, can go-go exist? Yes, because black musicians will always need jobs. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> okay. but seriously, okay. oh, you know, okay. we play together. So, you know, black musicians will always need jobs. So, most go-go musicians don't just play go-go. They're playing in the church on Sunday and Wednesday, yes. and yeah. they're playing yeah. another spot. And, you know, so, yeah, go-go can definitely exist. Um, currently, the situation we're in is... is Who's controlling the venues? Yeah, and we can talk more about this in depth if yeah. you have time after. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's mixing. Uh, I think mixing genres. If if you look at Go Go versus its cousins, which is hip hop and house music, both of those art forms were adopted by European populace. So <laughs> it got quiet. <laughs> so that's why hip hop and house music went so far. I mean. If we want to talk about that, yeah, go-go can exist. It still exists. Um, Absolutely. And elements of it can be added to new music. You know, adding live instrumentation to, you know, for the younger artists, having more musicians with them. I'm seeing it happen, but it's not as many young black bands, and not just specifically go-go. Like, it's not enough, enough young black bands working, doing it. So for that to happen, you know, we have to start infusing the instrumentation, and some of the masters got to grab some pupils and stuff. But it can definitely exist in D.C. Um, it's just about consumer culture, like shifting how we support locally based musicians and also how you know the venues that we support like the bills that they put on that's a big part of it shout out the funk parade um for 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 knowing that we have to not only put on for black music in dc but also the importance of like putting these different genres next to each other and showing that it's all like really one continuum so even when we try to define like oh is let me clear my throat hip-hop or go-go it's both you know what i'm saying we we keep Dividing, dividing, and yeah. part of that is probably why Go Go 
is where it is because we keep dividing. It's music, it's black music, and it's all those elements. So black music will thrive in DC. Stamp. Stamp. Thank you, everybody. Library closes at nine o'clock. Please sign up for the GoGo Archive email list, and we will continue to have these discussions in our public libraries. A history of go-go part two for your ass. I hope you guys uh, stick around. This is a great conversation. It's a beautiful conversation, beautiful thing. Uh, my friend Mark Stallion is out there uh, hustling every day, but he's also doing uh, not just good work, the great work. He's doing the work that will uh, that will enrich and maybe save us all, along with his friends, people like uh, Brianna Younger, Jamal Gray, uh, Geronimo, all those cats. Good times, good times at the library. Um, we're not going to do a track because that was long as fuck. Uh, so uh, this is the end of our podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can leave us a radio message there. You can also listen to us in Google Play, Stitcher, or Mixcloud. Still waiting on that Spotify, guys. Come on, hook us up. Your Spotify listeners will love us. If you're on Spotify, demand us. How about that? Uh, we're also, if, if you really want to support us, we're out there on Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash Chunky Glasses. And uh, look, this is an uh, effort that, this is an all-volunteer effort, except for me. I spend the money to do this shit. And, um, but everybody else comes to hang out and, uh, and does great work. Does work that frequently uh, explodes my expectations and uh, and work that I am continually amazed uh, that I get to uh, be a part of and help facilitate. And so if you feel the same way, then you can help support us over at Patreon. You can support us monthly. You can support us by episode. You can pledge a dollar. Pledge five. You can pledge ten. Or a million. If you're that guy out there listening to this and you just really got fucked up and... and just discovered this podcast hit that million button million dollar button guy and uh and we're set we're good and we'll make every episode dedicated to you right now our lone patron of justin beland gets a message and uh hopefully you know we, he almost came by for the wildflowers discussion and and uh, couldn't make it but we're gonna we're gonna try to get him back in there he used to be on the podcast back in the old days um but that's enough about us Coming up in the next few weeks, uh, Mr. Aaron Abernathy has a new album coming out. It is on the 16th. I recommend you go out and get it then. It'll be available on all your streaming services. But you can also go to his site and order it. Uh, and then we're going to have a review of that on the 19th. And then that next Thursday, uh, we're going to be sitting down with him. And you get to hear it. And talk about a remarkable artist, a remarkable friend who made a... a uh, in my mind, the best album in 2017. Maybe the 2010s arts thing. I don't know. Anyways, we got that coming up. We also get um, Midland, some country coming for your ass, and Kamasi, Washington. And, uh, and yeah, good stuff to look forward to as we race towards the end of the year. Thank you guys for tuning in. I uh, hope you guys are taking care of yourselves. We'll be back in a few short days. Until then, be good to your ears, but be better to your people. We will talk to you soon.
<laughs> 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 Kenobi.